I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. He is attacking democratically ran cities, and particularly cities that are being led um, by black leaders or leaders of color. This is unconscionable. I mean, it's a very raggedy approach, and quite frankly, not only is it reckless and raggedy, um, but it is evil-spirited. That is the mayor of the city of Chicago, Brandon Johnson. And who's he talking about? He is condemning the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. And why? Because illegal aliens who've been flooding into America by the millions, an estimated 9 million, perhaps even as many as 10 million that have come in in the last three years under Joe Biden. And where do many of them end up going? To the biggest cities in America. Places like New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. And for a time, those big cities very proudly declared their status as sanctuary cities where all were welcome. Well, they changed their tune about a year ago. And they said, we can't handle this flood of illegal aliens. So now, now that Governor Greg Abbott, whose state is being overrun by illegal aliens, who's been blocked by the Biden administration to try to do something about that flood of illegals, he's begun busing a very small number. I think the total estimate now is maybe 35,000 illegal aliens that he has bussed up to cities like D.C. and New York, Philadelphia and Chicago. And guess what? The people in those cities, like Brandon Johnson, the mayor of Chicago, are blowing a gasket about it because they're having to blow huge chunks of their city budget, which is supposed to serve the people of those cities. They're having to blow it on illegal aliens who've all of a sudden decided we're entitled to all of this. You have to give us a place to stay. You have to feed us. You have to provide for us. And you're going to do it at the expense of your own population if you have to. And Brandon Johnson and others, like Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, are just blowing a gasket. And who have they decided is guilty of forcing this on them and their cities? Not Joe Biden, the guy who actually has made it happen and could begin to bring it to a stop if he chose to do it. I mean, all Joe Biden would have to do is pick up the phone and call Alejandro Mayorkas, the secretary of Homeland Security, who's going to be impeached, I believe, by the House of Representatives for the crimes he's committed against this country, high crimes and misdemeanors. Why Brandon Johnson and Eric Adams and others could simply call Joe Biden and say, President, Mr. President, you can't do this to us anymore. You are destroying our cities. New York City alone is spending about a billion dollars every month taking care of most of the needs of the illegal aliens. And that billion, that's not coming out of thin air. That's not coming out of New York City's savings account, which doesn't exactly exist. No, it's coming out of other services that are supposed to be provided to the people who live in those cities. So what have they done instead? Brandon Johnson is saying that Governor Greg Abbott has evil intentions and that he's deliberately attacking people of color, the leaders of some of America's big cities. Well, I think that's hogwash. The fact that New York has a black mayor and Chicago has a black mayor and Washington, D.C. has a black mayor, those are the choices of the voters. So be it. 
You choose bad leadership for your city, you get the consequences. But that's not why Greg Abbott is sending the people there, the illegals there. He's sending them there because he's trying to make the point. This is a load that is coming down on all of the cities in America. And whether you notice the illegal aliens flooding in or not, I mean, we may be talking about a few hundred thousand illegal aliens in places like Philly and D.C. and New York and Chicago. But they're flooding into the entire country. They're just more visible in places like New York and Chicago than they are in all the other towns in America where those illegal aliens have flooded in. And what are they doing? They're going to consume resources. They're going to take up housing. Eventually, they'll probably take jobs. And if the Democrats have their way, Arizona is already signaling to illegal aliens, go ahead, vote in this year's presidential election. I kid you not, because Arizona is already telling the illegals this is part of Joe Biden's plan. Arizona says, well, you can vote, but you have to be a citizen. But if you want to vote and you don't want to provide proof that you're a citizen of the United States, relatively easy for people who live in this country, not very easy for illegal aliens. Arizona says to those illegal aliens, you can still register to vote, but you can only vote in federal elections, meaning elections for president, for Senate, for House of Representatives. Hold on a second. We're going to have illegal aliens voting in federal elections. That's right. And Arizona is showing the path that the Democrats, I think, are going to take with many of these nine million illegal aliens. They're all, they all recognize they're not stupid. They understand that the reason they got to come to the United States of America, illegally though it may be, is because of Joe Biden. This would not have happened under Donald Trump. Joe Biden made it possible. Donald Trump's already said on day one, which is January of next year, when he's president of the United States again, he's going to shut it down with executive orders. And he says if he has to act like a dictator that first day, he will do exactly that. And why? Because it's wrecking this country. It's diminishing the rule of law to nothing. And frankly, it's allowing a lot of people, fighting age males from places like China, not just Central and South America, but places like China and the rest of the world are coming into our country and we are giving them cash that America does not have to give away. Thousands of dollars to illegal aliens. So they land on the ground in places like Texas. They get a couple of thousand dollars. They get, they get, they get told you have a work permit. You can go off and work here. Show up in court in four or five years. If you do at all, that's what's happening right now. And it's very clear that Joe Biden and the Democrats plan to use a lot of those illegal aliens in places like Arizona to try to swing a presidential election using foreign means. Just be forewarned and forearmed about what's going on. And Brandon Johnson's complaints that this is an attack on leaders of color in America's big cities, those are the words he's using, not me. That somehow it's not Joe Biden that's attacking America, it's Greg Abbott because he's shipping the illegals out of his state. Glad to have you with me on a Tuesday. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. What's coming up the rest of this hour? The Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney. You know, Fannie Willis. The one who's prosecuting Donald Trump, only she, only she hired an inexperienced private attorney 
to be the special counsel, to be the independent voice to investigate and prosecute Donald Trump. And now it turns out that the Fulton County DA had as her secret lover this attorney, that she's managed to channel more than $600,000 of taxpayer money to to prosecute Donald Trump. And it also appears that they've been coordinating with the Joe Biden White House. Imagine that. We'll get into the details of it later on this hour. It's crunch time for Iowa and New Hampshire. Do any of Donald Trump's rivals have a snowball's chance of overtaking him in the first two GOP primary states? And this Saturday, voters in Taiwan will choose their next president. Will China trample on the island's pursuit of freedom? Glad to be with you on a Tuesday. Coming up in a moment, as Taiwan gears up for its big election this Saturday, is China going to try to extinguish the flame of freedom in that country? We'll get to that next and your phone calls. ask Lars if he wants to run for public office, like president. Do you know how much power I'd have to give up to be president? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. I have a little uh, disclosure to make. I've made it before, and that is that I have a dog in the fight when it comes to Taiwan. I was born there, and I think a lot of that country, the free China, the Republic of China, differentiated from the People's Republic on the mainland, which is a big Chinese communist bully nation instead. And I think they would like to seize the island nation of Taiwan if they could get away with it. There's an election going on in Taiwan this weekend. And I'm curious what Frank Gaffney knows about what China's going to try to do to try to get in the way of those people choosing their own leadership. Frank, welcome back to the program. Lars, thank you. They're doing a number of things already and have been for quite some time. You're more now uh, military operations intended to intimidate, um, including uh, flying bombers and fighter aircraft into Taiwanese airspace, uh, not just across the middle line, as they call it, Taiwan Strait, but uh, into the Chinese air defense uh, identification zone. Uh, They've been flying uh, missiles in there as well. Uh, They've been flying balloons over the island. And most recently, just today, I gather they flew a satellite over the island uh, as just one more example of an effort to intimidate the people of China, of of, uh, free China, if you will, uh, the Republic of China, as you call it. But increasingly, they think of it as just Taiwan. They think of themselves as people who are not really of or part of China at all, but uh, an independent nation. And that's what's on the line here in this election, Lars. There are three candidates, one representing as the vice president now of the uh, ruling party, the Democratic People's Party, uh, and two others, uh, an independent and, and a, a, the guy out of the old Kuomintang party of uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek wouldn't recognize it. It's become the party of uh, submission to China. And really, that's uh, the choice that these folks will face. Uh, do they want to continue to be free, free to govern themselves, free to have a economic prosperity uh, unknown in China? Uh, or do they 
you know, willingly or unwillingly uh, agree to be enslaved by the Chinese Communist Party. And that, of course, is what Xi Jinping has in mind for them. And the question is, uh, if they opt for freedom instead, uh, will he do what he has now incessantly been threatening? And that is to uh, unify, or as he likes to say, reunify, but it it would be for the first time, really, unify Taiwan with China by force, if necessary. I'm talking to Frank Gaffney, the founder of the Center for Security Policy. He's the author also of the number one best-selling book on Amazon in its category, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the World. Frank, so are the Taiwanese uh, intimidated when China takes these actions, or does this make them even more determined to stay independent when China makes these threatening moves? Well, it's a little dangerous to generalize and and you know, probably we really won't know the answer to that until close of business on Saturday. But I think it's fair to say, Lars, that large numbers of them, and I think it's actually a majority, don't want any part of being enslaved. They've, they've watched what happened to Hong Kong, you know, just within the past couple of years, and they don't have any appetite for that. Unfortunately, there are some who are willing to go there. And some who I think will think they will benefit. Um, Generally, that isn't so much the case that if you are a, 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 you know, a compliant um, person willing to basically betray your country uh, in the furtherance of the interests of a tyrant like the Chinese Communist Party, they won't have much use for you if they if they do succeed in taking over. In fact, often they're the ones that get sent to the wall to be shot first. But that doesn't mean that they won't necessarily turn out in numbers and, and vote for people who would be perfectly prepared to uh, continue to try to improve relations with China, as it's put. And that's a euphemism for, I think, surrendering in the end. Well, and, and you're right. What I'm trying to wrap my head around is, What's the advantage for those people uh, among the three candidates, the, the one who says, well, we should, we should get along better with the mainland? What's the advantage? The mainland is still a communist country, no freedom. Taiwan is an incredibly productive country. What's the advantage of hooking up with China? I'm not sure there is an advantage unless you are preoccupied with the possibility that uh, you might be attacked and perhaps even destroyed if you don't go along with what the Chinese are threatening. And that's a calculation that, unfortunately, the Chinese are doing everything to try to influence uh, to the best of their ability. And, uh, it, you know, it's a great credit to those in Taiwan who are saying, you know, we're not going to do that, even despite these threats, even despite the real dangers that are now so present. Uh, and especially given that it's not by any means certain that the United States will ride to the rescue if that happens. Uh, look at what's happening to the this uh, so-called uh, administration of Joe Biden. I mean, the Secretary of Defense can go AWOL for the better part of a week yep. without anybody even noticing, and uh, let alone him taking steps to try to make sure there's continuity in the chain of command, not least the nuclear chain of command, which in a moment like this is rather important to deterring the Chinese Communist Party from 
engaging in this kind you of You know behavior. what, Frank, it's, that it's was next on my list really. to ask you about is Lloyd Austin simply, I mean, I understand he's got cancer. I wish the best for him and a, a speedy recovery. So he goes in for elective surgery, but still surgery he had to have because of prostate cancer and uh, and then ends up in apparently incredible pain. He went in on the 22nd of December, was in terrible pain on the 1st of January and went back to the hospital and they slapped him into intensive care, for goodness sake. And he doesn't think it's necessary to tell his boss, the commander in chief, or even to tell, as I understand, Ms. Hicks, his deputy secretary, uh, was on vacation in Puerto Rico and didn't know the boss was uh, was incapacitated. How in the world does that kind of thing happen? Well, look, uh, having worked a long time ago, to be sure, but for a secretary of defense by the name of Casper Weinberger, who was, of course, Ronald Reagan's Secretary yep. of Defense, uh, that guy wouldn't have gone missing for 15 minutes, probably, even an hour, certainly, without everybody in the chain of command knowing that uh, he was absent. Um, it would not be without leave, in other words. And and the thing is, Lars, I, I think you can only explain it uh, to the extent it's possible, really, by understanding that this is a seriously dysfunctional administration. Uh, it appears that the president is angry with uh, the secretary, we're told, uh, that he hasn't spoken with him in some time, um, that others in the White House uh, don't have any regard for him. And, and look, I, I make no brief for this guy. I don't think he's a particularly capable individual. I think he's way, way over his uh, pay grade. So the problem is that um, he's nonetheless the secretary of defense. And what was done here is actually not just evidence of dysfunction. It is a national security threat. We can't be doing this at a time when I believe the Chinese are spoiling for war, a shooting war, not the unrestricted pre-kinetic kind, a shooting war, and they have in their crosshairs us, not just the Thai. Well, and Frank, then, then at some point, you know, when Lloyd Austin, I mean, I guess, I guess we're going to, Lloyd Austin isn't talking much. He wasn't even going to tell us what he was sick with initially. But, but with him in that position, and if the boss isn't talking to you, and maybe you're, maybe you're even in trouble, you know, in terms of hanging on to your job, wouldn't you think that would be the point where when the secretary says, I'm going to be in the hospital for a couple of days for this surgery, but I should be right back out. Wouldn't you think one of the first questions his subordinates would have said was, well, should we let the White House know? So it, it, was it deliberate on his part to say, no, keep the White House in the dark, and people below him went along with that? Look, Lars, there, there's a lot of unexplained questions here, and I, I, let me just say, um, it, that man is protected 24-7 by a security detail. That security detail had to have known he was not on the job. He was in um, intensive care or in the hospital, whatever. Yep. Yeah. And they had to tell people up the chain of command. They had to, or if they didn't, they were derelict in their job as well. Absolutely. That's Frank Gaffney from the Center for Security Policy. Frank, thanks very much. Back in a moment with your calls. The Lars Larson Show. men and the people. Donald Trump 
with a warning to Hamas at the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference. If you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I've got to give you the new details about Fannie Willis and the prosecution of Donald Trump down in Georgia. But first, I want to grab some calls. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's here every single night at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Darren is listening in Michigan on WILS. Hey, Darren, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Thanks, Lars. Nice to speak with you again. Uh, yeah, I'm a little uh, kind of perplexed on uh, Arizona uh, because wasn't it just two, three weeks ago uh, Hobbs called up the National Guard because of the immigration problem, but yet you were saying they're going to let them vote in yep. the presidential? Well, let me tell you how they're going to do this, Darren. Sure. Um in a lot of ways, can I compare it to something I suspect I can prove you do? Do you ever drive on a highway where the speed limit is 60 miles an hour? Absolutely. Do you ever go 65 miles an hour in that 60-mile-an-hour zone? Yeah. Okay. And and is there some place you could show me in the law where you're allowed to do 65 in a 60? Nope. But if you talk to most police officers, and I've had this conversation a few times, and I have a lot of friends who are cops, and uh, you say, you're going to let a guy go get by with going by you at 65 and a 60? They're going to say, yeah, if he's four or five over the limit, not even going to pay any attention to it. We're just going to let it go by. And yet officially, it's still illegal. This is essentially what Arizona is going to do. They're going to tell people who are registering to vote, if you register, you must be a citizen to vote. But if you choose not to show us proof that you're a citizen in the United States, then we will still register you to vote, but we're going to warn you. We're going to wag our finger at you like Bill Clinton did way back in the day and say, you know, you're only allowed to vote if you're a citizen. And the illegal will nod and say, yeah. And because you didn't give us, this is what Arizona is actually saying in its voter registration, because you do, would not give us your proof of citizenship, you're only allowed to vote, you're going to love this part, Darren, in the federal mm -hmm. elections, meaning Senate, House, and President. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a wink and a nod saying, you would think that what Arizona would do is say, you want to register to vote. Great. Where's your proof of citizenship? I don't have proof of citizenship. Then you can't, we won't even register you to vote. But instead, they're going to say that you can only vote in the federal election. So uh, Hobbs, the governor of the state, who I think is is less than a desirable governor, um, Democrat, and I think she che I think she cheated herself, you know, in that, in that case, to win the office. But... You know, but that's a discussion for another day. But what is probably the only race in America that Katie Hobbs cares deeply about in this election? Getting reelected, most likely. I mean, well, not her, because she just got elected. She cares about getting Joe Biden back in in the Oval Office. So does does she give a does she give a damn that illegal aliens will vote and they'll probably vote for the guy who let them into the country, Joe Biden? Yeah, but the crazy thing is, it 
A, it's illegal. You have to be a citizen to vote, but we'll let you register. And if you happen to show up at the polls, wink, wink, nod, nod. I mean, that's the same crap we went through in 2020. And, you know, it's gone It's, on it's what they're going to do. They're doing a wink yeah. and a nod. If you asked a cop, can I legally drive down this road 65? You're going to say, you can't legally drive. The speed limit is 60. Then you say, so you're going to stop me and and, uh, and write me a ticket? No, nah, at 65, I'm not going to write you a ticket. If they've told you by their actions, we will register you to vote even though we know you're not a citizen. We will let you vote in the federal election, but we'll, we'll give you the official warning. You know you're not allowed to vote if you're not a citizen, but you can still vote in the federal election. That's as good as the cop sitting there while you drive by at 65. <laughs> He, you know he's going to let you do it. He knows he's going to let you do it. And uh, and he doesn't have to write a bunch of paperwork for a 65-mile-an-hour speed ticket, right? Yeah, it's like, uh, here, oh, here's your immigration hearing in seven years. We'll see you then, right? Wink, yeah, nod. Yeah, like, like oh. anybody is going to actually show up then. Thanks for the call, by the way, Darren. Let's go to Chris. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Chris. Hey, gotcha. What's on your mind? Hey, yeah, I just wanted to, to chat with you real quick about Lloyd Austin because um, I hadn't heard you mention it today, but, you know, I didn't know if you'd heard the update that uh, apparently he did let his uh, staffers underneath him know that he was going to be, you know, on leave in the hospital. And, you know, obviously we know the lady uh, that he put in charge is on vacation, but I guess he did let those staffers know beneath him that we're supposed to communicate that to the White House, that he would be, you know, on leave, uh, and they did not Hold, hold, hold on a second. So he told his subordinates, and it was his subordinates' job to tell the White House? From what I understand, I heard, I heard this multiple times on KXL earlier. From what I understand, there was uh, a woman that it was her job to have communicated that from the Pentagon to the White House, and she did not communicate that. And unless I understood it wrong, she was she's also the person that they've put in charge of handling the investigation, which seemed kind of odd to me. Gee, doesn't that but, sound just like a Democrat operation? You've got the Secretary sure of, of sure Defense does. who doesn't. I mean, I would think if you're working at that level in the government, you're the Secretary of Defense. How is it that you don't call and say, and you don't have to call Biden, you call his, his chief of staff. And you say, hey, by the way, I'm going to be out of pocket for a few days. i got to have some surgery done, and I'll let you know. Instead, you turn it over to a subordinate so he can roll over on the subordinate, I guess, and say it's the subordinate's job uh, to let the boss know that, that a high-level, high-ranking staffer is not going to be there. So she gets to take the blame. Uh, my understanding was Hicks on vacation had no idea what was going on and was not informed. But if that's wrong, that's okay. But but the problem is, how is it the White House didn't know? Because you would think that the White House, even if they don't, and apparently they don't particularly like Lloyd Austin. I mean, this is the guy that Joe Biden couldn't even remember his name at one point early in Joe Biden's presidency. He had appointed the guy to be Secretary of Defense and couldn't recall his name uh, when he was giving a speech about Lloyd Austin, or that at least it mentioned Lloyd Austin. And now all of a sudden, he can, his, his Secretary of Defense can disappear for days 
uh, into intensive care and the White House has absolutely no idea what's going on? Doesn't make any sense at all. Most of that doesn't. But put the lady who made the mistake in charge of investigating. By the way, about Fannie Willis, DA in Fulton County, Georgia, she's she's vowed to get Donald Trump, just like Letitia James in New York City. She hires the guy she's sleeping with, her lover. Nathan Wade pays him two-thirds of a million dollars of the taxpayer money. And by the way, Wade then paid for lavish vacations that he took Willis on using the money that he made from his firm. And it does it begin to call into question whether or not the, the White House was coordinating with this? Because there are calls for the White House to reveal the details of two meetings that happened in 2022 between employees of the White House and Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor working for Fulton County DA Fannie Willis, his lover, in the election interference case involving Donald Trump. And this guy is sitting down for meetings in the White House with White House staffers. And you tell me this wasn't a setup job from the very beginning. Glad to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Coming up in just a moment, we got other things to talk about. The first two contests of the 2024 presidential election, Iowa and New Hampshire, just days away. We'll talk about that next. Pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your phone calls. I'll do that in a moment. But we've got two big political contests, Iowa and New Hampshire, coming up. And the perfect person to talk to about that is somebody who's got great background because she's run for public office. I mean, if there was any justice in the world, she'd actually be in the United States Congress, but that didn't work out so well. Madison Jesse Otto Gilbert. Ms. Jesse Otto Gilbert, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you. Glad to have you on board. Uh, can we talk about what we expect to see happen in uh, both Iowa and the caucuses and the New Hampshire primary? Yeah, well, I think it's super exciting. I mean, this is officially, you know, the big kickoff. We're getting closer and closer to November. Uh, we're going to see voters make their decision. The caucuses are obviously very interesting to watch. It's very different than what happens in most states. So I think that'll be exciting for people. Uh, then we have New Hampshire, and we'll be closer and closer to having our nominee. And that's what we're looking forward to, to have that nominee, to get behind them, to back them, to get one step closer to beating Biden, getting these Democrats out of office as we continue to see. They have no clue what they're doing. Uh, Biden specifically has no clue who he is half the time. But the reality is people are suffering across this country as a result of that. So we we need change. And we need you sound like me. I don't think I don't think Biden's very tuned in. I mean, clearly, his defense secretary disappeared for a week and he didn't even know it had happened. But the I want to ask you this. Do Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley have an Iowa snowballs chance of of doing uh, anything meaningful against Donald Trump? Who knows? Anything can happen. Obviously, the president's held a substantial lead, uh, and we're ready to back whoever that nominee is. Obviously, as a party, we have to stay neutral until after we have the nominee officially, and that's what we've done. Uh, we put on a fair and transparent primary process for anybody who wanted to get involved, uh, very different than what the Democrats have done, which I disagree with. I think it should always be a fair and transparent process coming from the parties. And then whoever's victorious, the party works together with them, and hopefully when you look at politicians across the country, they unite behind whoever that is 
and make sure that we get that person across the finish line, because that's what matters. At the end of the day, if Republicans are fighting, we won't win. And so we need to come together and we need to make sure we do everything we can as a party, uh, that our elected officials do the same, that our grassroots activists across the country do the same, that we're all pushing forward to that finish line. I just want to make sure that when we get to that point, when they've chosen the nominee, and I'm a I'm a Trump partisan, so I, I back Donald Trump, have all the, all the way along uh, and, and, and will all the way to November, but I want to make sure the party really gets behind him because that's my concern is that, you know, it, perhaps that didn't happen as effectively as it should have, especially in the aftermath of 2020. I wanted the party to be front and center uh, in, in some of those battles, and, and I got the impression they weren't. Well, I think that from a party perspective, the party's 100 percent behind President Trump if he's that nominee. Not even a question, as you may already know. I was the president's spokesperson on the inauguration back in 2017. I was one of his day one supporters in the 2016 campaign. I was on his advisory board. So I've worked with the president uh, previously for many, many years in different capacities. Um, He did great things for this country. And if he is that nominee, I know that the party uh, and the chairwoman are ready to get behind him. And right now, I mean, we've been supporting him in many ways when it comes to a lot of the legal battles we're fighting on the, the election interference front. Of course, we would do this for any of our candidates. But obviously, President Trump is the one who specifically has been attacked throughout this cycle. They've tried to take him off the ballot and done so successfully, obviously, in a couple places. The Supreme Court has now picked up that case which we anticipated, obviously, that they would. We filed an amicus brief in that case to support the president. We set aside funds to make sure we could be a part of that legal battle. We're in 72 different cases across the country when it comes to election integrity. Following 2020, when people were very upset with what was going on across the country, we opened an election integrity department focused solely on this issue. And we're fighting not only in court, but behind the scenes in many ways that people don't realize when it comes to purging the voter rolls and it comes to things people don't see, but they recognize are very important on on the election integrity front. I'm talking to Madison Jesse Otto Gilbert, a national spokesperson for the RNC. She may be the person best qualified. I've I've been calling the Biden team uh, the party of Tanya Harding. And, and see, since you have a background as a figure skater, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I said they've decided that if they can't legitimately beat their competition, they're going to kneecap him if they can. And I'm wondering how where are we going to see this go? Because we've got all these criminal uh, prosecutions, most of which seem to be falling apart. We've got the efforts to pull him off the ballot, which which doesn't make constitutional sense or anything else. But but they seem willing to do anything, including kneecapping the guy to keep him out of the race. Uh, how how should Americans read that? Well, I think nobody should be surprised. First of all, if you look back at what the Democratic Party has become over the past decade, uh, it's a really big disappointment. I know a lot of people, family members, friends, acquaintances, uh, work colleagues over the years that previously were Democrats and have come to the Republican Party as a result of this major shift in the Democratic Party. I mean, you look back even to the 2016 race. And I remember being on Fox and CNN and talking so frequently about how radical Bernie Sanders and some of these Democrats were, but very little did many people recognize that that would be the mainstream of the Democratic Party just a few years later. So they've gone very, very far out there to the left. And then on top of it, they're willing to do anything uh, to to kneecap. The competition, they recognize that they can't win on the issues. They can't win on facts. And so whether they start talking out in left field on emotions and feelings or they start doing things like they're doing in Colorado and Maine, uh, they'll continue to do it. We need to open Americans' eyes to this. Again, I don't care if you're a Democrat out there listening. If you're a Democrat out there seeing what's going on, you should be as just as scared as I am and as you are, Lars, because 
this could happen to anybody. And we don't want to see this happen to a Democrat just as much as you don't want to see it happen to a Republican. Uh, we as Republicans have integrity. We're the party of optimism. We're the party uh, of fairness. We're the party of economic opportunity. And we want to see that for everybody, not just for Republicans. You know where I'd like to see the party right now is I gave my audience the example of Arizona, where they're doing this wink, wink, nod, nod, saying, oh, all you illegal aliens, you know what? We're going to register you to vote. And if you don't have proof of citizenship, we'll give you the federal voter registration form and you can vote in the federal elections. Are we going to let that happen? Because Joe Biden has let nine million of these illegals into the country. And now states like Arizona are going to say, yeah, with a wink and a nod, we're going to let you go ahead and vote in the federal election. It's, I mean, unbelievable. The border crisis, exactly what we warned was going to happen, has happened. Um, and we're seeing the videos coming out on social media every single day of all the people at the Phoenix airport and elsewhere um, all across our country. We have no idea who's here. Um, when it comes to Arizona, one of the things that I think is interesting that many people don't know, um, and this came from our election integrity department, was the pre- public pressure campaign that we put on as the Democrat secretary of state pretty much rolled out the red carpet in Arizona um, to get the Patriot Party on the ballot. I don't know if you followed this at all, but basically they didn't let observers in. We conducted an investigation on these false signatures, uh, pretty much put the pressure on, said, we'll sue if you certify this. The next day, uh, they backtracked on what they were doing. They didn't certify, didn't let this party on the ballot, which was pretty much a way to just take votes from Republicans. Shame them out out of the sunlight. Madison, I got a break because we're hitting a a hard break at the top of the hour. I know we're going to be talking a lot this year. I so appreciate your efforts as a national spokesperson for the RNC. Thank you. I look forward to joining soon. And Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you as well. That's Madison Jessiato Gilbert, official spokesperson for the Republican National Committee. I'd talk to the DNC, but they won't talk to me. The Lars Larson Show. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. And what should we make of the fact that journalists get caught on a hot microphone talking about the assassination of Donald Trump? I'll get you the details of that in just a moment. We've even got a soundbite. It's not terrific audio, but it's okay. Let me share that with you in a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. And as you know, we call this the best conversation and talk journalism. 866-HEY-LARS is how you join. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our X poll. The poll on X is what we used to call the Twitter poll. Will you still fly with Alaska Airlines after one of their planes, well, part of the fuselage, actually blew out in mid-flight? Now, I've had a few people point out to me, That's not a maintenance item. That mistake might have actually been made at Boeing, but who knows? At this point, I have to confess, 
I like Alaska Airlines, but this past week, it has not exactly burnished the company's reputation for safe air travel. A door plug blows out of a plane 16,000 feet in the air, not too far from where I'm standing right now, creating an emergency. Thank God everybody got to the ground safely. Then we find out the airline already knew the plane had problems. Pilots got pressurization warnings three times on different flights. Alaska Airlines considered that problem big enough that it limited that particular 737 MAX to only flying over dry land. And then the door blew up. Did the crew, not the door, but the door plug blew out. Did the crew on that flight get a pressurization warning light like the three previous flights? We may never actually know. The crew forgot to follow procedure and shut down the cockpit voice recorder when they landed. So the CVR recorded over all of the audio of what happened that night. Meanwhile, 737 MAX 9s are still grounded and other airlines are finding that bolts on some of those pressurized plugs are loose. We don't know how many screws loose there are at Alaska, but as I said, not exactly the finest hour for air transportation in America. So you're still going to fly? I'd answer yes. Because if you take a look at the history of American aviation, commercial jet travel is one of the safest ways to travel. And believe me, I got no dog in the fight other than occasionally I do end up flying. And by the way, I usually fly in coach and I pay my own way. In any case, you can find today's X poll on X or if you prefer Twitter at Lars Larson Show and on our website at LarsLarson.com. It's brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I join. You should, too. Just go to AMAC.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Yesterday's question, should Joe Biden fire his defense secretary for keeping a serious hospital stay secret from his boss? As you may have heard, Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense, was out of action for about five days in intensive care, four days in intensive care, five days in the hospital. As a result, we find out now that he was being treated for prostate cancer, which is something I hope he has a happy and safe recovery from. But the question is, should he have told the commander-in-chief of the United States, Joe Biden? He didn't, and that uh, that requires an explanation of some kind. Uh, 89% of you agreed with me and said, yep, he ought to get fired. Only 11% of you said no. To your calls now. Let's go to uh, FX is your name? Yes, FX in New Plymouth, Idaho. Okay, uh, FX, thanks for listening on KIDO. What's on your mind today? I think a possible interesting parallel to Donald Trump would be the information to find out why Grover Cleveland did not get reelected, what happened the next four years that caused America to put him back in office. I think in that'd be 18, what, in 1884? Grover Cleveland. But what does that have to do with today? I'm curious. Maybe it's the same type of issues. Maybe it's the same type of uh, things going on that we could maybe better explain. This is why we're looking to put Donald Trump back in the office again. For well, whatever I think reason, he didn't I get think the reason, 
excuse me, but the reason we're, uh, I would like to see Donald Trump back in office is because he was a fantastic president who achieved a lot for America and put America first. And Joe Biden has done incalculable damage to America. Aren't those good enough reasons? And what does that have to do with an election 140 years ago? Amen. I agree with that. Let's put Donald Trump back in. I'm just curious. It'd be interesting if it was the same type of deal, same type of occurrences. It, you know, not exactly as 100 years ago. Well, what, which occurrences are you talking about that make you compare the election or non-election of Grover, Grover Cleveland in 1884 to the uh, Donald Trump run in I, 2024? I don't know. I'm saying it'd be interesting if we mm. could kind of find that out. It might be interesting if it's a parallel today. Okay. I guess everything would be interesting. I just thought maybe I could get us an an idea of what line you're thinking along. I don't think there's very much about 1884 that compares at all to what's going on in America right now. But thank you for the call. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I'm going to give full and lavish credit to our friends at the Gateway Pundit, who did this story, a hot mic caught two journalists making jokes alluding to the assassination of former President Donald Trump as they were awaiting for his arrival at a federal courthouse today. I want you to take a listen to this. It's uh, not the best audio in the world, but these are reporters caught on a hot mic just happily laughing and joking about the possible assassination of Donald Trump. Take a listen. I mean, if he's driving, we've got a good shot. Yeah, if he's driving with the front window open. Yeah. Or if it's a convertible. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about that. Yeah. Like, if he just pulls up like, like JFK. A it's like a JFK. Illusion. <laughs> Just like JFK. I mean, what happened was it happened outside the Barrett Pettyman, uh, Prettyman uh, Courthouse, uh, which is uh, along the anticipated route from the Trump National Golf Club in Virginia. The former president to appear before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And while they're waiting, these reporters start having a laughing, joking moment about whether or not it would be relatively easy to assassinate Donald Trump. You see, the reason I take this so seriously is that I think the Democrats are running out of options. They've tried criminal indictments, 91 of them. That hasn't done what they want, which is Donald Trump not running for president. They're trying to take him off the ballot. They've already done it in Maine and Colorado. Now the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to decide that one. And for about 14 or 15 other states that are considering just literally taking him off the ballot so Americans have no choice whether they can vote for him or not. He won't even be on the ballot. And in fact, I've had a few of you say, well, just write him in on a write-in ballot. In Colorado, they've already said, if he's off the ballot, we won't even count the write-in votes. That's the situation we're in. What do the Democrats do next? Increasingly desperate people usually try desperate means. Coming up in just a moment, what are the big strides in medicine that we're on the verge of seeing become reality in 2024? We'll talk to our favorite go-to doctor about that next.
Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather. Helping web tech, the, web, web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. He's got a million of them out there. Joe Biden, uh, you just have to turn on the mic and let him talk. And after a while, he sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Glad to have you with me. If you want to jump into the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And we welcome Dr. Henry Miller, uh, our go-to medical guy, a physician and molecular biologist, now at the American Council on Science and Health. Doc, welcome back. Good to be with you, Lars, as always. And Happy New Year to you. Tell me about this. I wanted to talk about new developments that are coming in medicine. Are there some things that are sort of right around the corner as far as the techno- what technology is de- 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 or is uh, promising to deliver in the uh, field of medicine? Oh, there are all sorts of interesting things going on, Lars. Um, vaccines are, are one of them, and I know you're probably not as big on um, mRNA vaccines as some. Yeah. Yeah, but, to say uh, to say the least, you're right. But but uh, Operation Warp Speed was an example of how quickly we can respond to a dangerous pathogen uh, with a new technology that really wouldn't have been possible with with the old uh, vaccines that w- had to be grown in a hundred million eggs, for example. But um, there, there are all sorts of things going on, and, and, and I'll just say one more thing about vaccines. You know, in a sense, they've become uh, a victim of their own success since the Salk vaccine, which uh, I and my cohorts lined up for in the 1950s. Um, the uh, vaccines like the mumps, measles, and rubella are so successful that uh, doctors never see them. I, even in my training in the 70s, I never saw a single case of any of those. And yet there's currently an outbreak in Philadelphia, of all places. Uh, they've had eight cases of measles in the last three weeks. And uh, that's despite a vaccination um, uh, percentage of 93%. So let me ask you something. Do you have a a thumbnail theory on why that might be, and could it have anything to do with 9 million illegal aliens coming in from every corner of planet Earth? Well, it it could. What it has to do with mainly is that um, vaccine hesitancy, vaccine rejection, is becoming more and more common. And so these are all kids who are unvaccinated because their parents didn't want them vaccinated in this case. Uh, and uh, we're seeing that spillover uh, into uh, veterinary practices. Uh, so there's even um, hesitation about vaccinating pets and uh, infectious diseases like distemper uh, and rabies are becoming more. Well, more you understand why that's happened, don't you, Doc? Because, I mean, for instance, I saw I heard the number the other day that the uh, the the percentage of Americans who've decided to take the latest round of covid boosters. And I haven't taken any of them. Uh, but but that's just my decision. And I made it for my own reasons. and I've explained them on the air. But it's maybe 20 percent. That means 80 percent of the population is saying not for me. And I think the medical establishment, the whole collective mess, uh, has has generated an awful lot of that distrust by not communicating clearly with the public. And that, and I, I and I put a lot of the fault on that on the folks who are the leaders, uh, not you, but but the leaders of the medical community. 
for not clearly communicating what's actually going on and what's what's promised and uh, and 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 other information that I think was held back. You and I are completely in agreement on that. In fact, uh, I wrote an article on that yesterday and this morning and sent it to the South Florida Sun Sentinel this morning. Uh, my my uh, quip in there was my unfunny unf- quip is that um, the uh, public health leaders in the Biden administration, CDC director, NIH director, um, pu- uh, Surgeon General, uh, have been so silent and uncommunicative on this that they could almost be in the federal witness protection program flipping burgers in Wyoming. I mean, because th- this is the kind of thing that, and it gets us a little off topic, but it really uh, permeates the Biden administration. For example, uh, I'll bet, Henry, you heard about the, the little incident, airline incident, that I've talked about a bit tonight. In fact, it's the subject of our poll on, on X, formerly known as Twitter. And it was about this, this side panel on a, on a major airline carrier, Alaska, that blew out mid-flight at 16,000 feet. Thank God it wasn't 35,000 feet. And, and you say, okay, so, you know, why, why did that happen? Now, who would you expect from the Biden administration would be the number one person to step up and give some statements about about the airline industry? Well, I think it would but, be Pete Buttigieg, right? Absolutely. And he's been AWOL. I, I, ju- I checked. I thought my impression is he hadn't said a damn thing about it. I, I did a Google a search this morning, and he doesn't show up anywhere. And I thought, well, he didn't show up anywhere with a supply chain problem. He was less than useful with East Palestine, the toxic train wreck. You know, all these various things. And you've got a defense secretary who's AWOL and a transportation secretary who's AWOL. It's like the whole administration is just a bunch of people who don't even seem to know what their job is. Listen, and let's not leave out Mayorkas. Oh, Mayorkas, who's lied actively to Congress. and No, I mean, that whole bunch, If you could, could you name one cabinet? I can't remember the name of the Ag Secretary. There may be one out there who's just quiet, but it's you expect these people to be the ones to communicate. This is what's gone wrong. This is what we're doing to find out what's wrong, and, and this is how America is going to respond when it's a national transportation issue. That story, which happened literally, I think that door blew out, probably not more than, you know, 50 miles from where I'm standing right now. And thank God everybody got to the ground. But there are no answers coming out, and nobody's taking the lead role, and it should be the Secretary of Transportation, and it's not. Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and the, uh, the Biden cabinet has been especially atrocious. I mean, just unqu- I mean, Buttigieg uh, seems to have had as his uh, major qualification to be Secretary of Transportation that during a visit he once took the subway in New York. I mean, this, it's ridiculous. He had no experience whatsoever. No, and in fact, I knew his history. He'd been on the show a number of years ago, back when he was mayor of South Bend, uh, Indiana. And he did a terrible job running a small town. So Joe Biden said, well, let's put him in charge of the entire national transportation system in America. What could go wrong when a failed small town mayor who managed to screw things up badly in South Bend uh, suddenly becomes secretary of transportation? And then at the in his first year in office, decides to take two months off for mater- for paternity leave. And you say, you really can take two months off from a job like that? Anyway, can you... Tell my audience some of the other big things that are coming in medicine that we should expect this year. 
Yeah, one of the uh, ones that has been around for a while that I, I mentioned in my article on this is open-heart surgery, uh, which we take for granted pretty much now, but it, it's a, it's a two-part um, two-part technology. One is the uh, the surgeon who actually performs the miracles of of cutting and sewing uh, inside the the heart cavity. Uh, but the other is the uh, bypass machine, cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, which takes the blood out of the patient, oxygenates it, and then returns it uh, to oxygenate the organs while the surgeon is doing uh, the, the procedure. And uh, I, I loved cardiac surgery. I did two rotations, and we did 14- and 16-hour operations at times. Uh, in, while the the, uh, the per patient was on bypass, there are now half a million of these procedures a year that are possible because of uh, of that. But that's that's old stuff. Yeah, um, we're, we're stuff, up against the break, though, Henry. I'm going to have to, and I will tell you this: I've watched a few open heart surgeries myself. I'm not a doctor, but I got a chance to you know be front row seat for some transplants and also some other open heart surgeries. It's amazing stuff that all of this is just routine. You can read all about it at henrymillermd.org. Dr. Miller, thanks very much, and Happy New Year to you. Coming up in just a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-439-5277. And why are the Democrats urging Joe Biden to stay away from any kind of debate with his likely opponent, Donald Trump? We'll dig into that as well. The Lars Larson Show. American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned. The green agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. I get popper! So prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your phone calls and emails. I want to tell you a bit about what the Democrats are now saying. They're telling Joe Biden, avoid the debates. Don't debate with Donald Trump. I want to dig into that in just a moment. First, let's go to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go first to Jim. Hey, Jim, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Oh, oh thank you, Lars. I think there's been a, a company personality change in the Boeing company since after they left Seattle and moved to um, Chicago. Chicago you know, for their headquarters. They they used to not have problems. They had one, I think it's about four years ago. Uh, it's like a planes going up and down like dolphins swimming on the surface of the water. That's and I seven, think one 737 Max. It's actually the same plane that had the door plug blow out. But I, I will tell you, Jim, I know that they faulted the way that the avionics were done on that airplane. But do you yeah. know where, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, I think the reason they had that problem, the older problem, where the 737 Maxes were grounded, um, and people mm-hmm. said, oh, they designed the plane wrong, or they wrote the software wrong, or they set up the avionics wrong. Let me tell you my, my point of view on it, if you don't mind, and then you tell me what you think. 
Um, sure. That airplane, the 737 MAX, was being used by two major airlines in America at the time they had the problems with airplanes overseas in foreign countries. But the ones that were mm-hmm. flying here were flying 400 flights a day without any problems. Now, here's what the difference is for those planes, because I don't think it was a matter of Boeing uh, making a bad airplane. The folks up front, if I remember right from our discussions back then, the minimum number of hours you or I would have to have as the pilot in charge in a plane would be 1,500 hours before they would even consider putting us in either the left seat or the right seat up front in in, a, in an American airline. On the other hand, mm-hmm. you go to foreign countries, and Ethiopia was one of the countries, I can't remember the other, that, that had the problems. They had people who had a few hundred hours as pilot, and they don't know how to fly planes. And when I say that, I'm not a pilot either, but I know a lot of pilots, and, and let me tell you what they mean by that. Most of the mm-hmm. pilots in America, uh, uh, many of them are former military, but an awful lot of them are, are uh, people who learned how to fly smaller planes, and there you have to actually fly the airplane. You don't have a big, complicated right. autopilot or any of the rest of that. And the autopilot in a plane is not like the cruise control in your car. If it starts to do things that you can't control, which is what happened with the 737 MAX a few years ago, do you know what every pilot I know tells tells me you should do? You turn the autopilot off and you then fly the plane yourself. The problem is there are a lot of foreign countries where the airlines say, you know, running an airplane would be like uh, running a forklift or running a, a bulldozer. You you hire a new employee who looks like he or she may do a good job, and then you give them some training, and they start flying. And they fly very much like like I might operate a piece of heavy equipment. You say, okay, you push this button, then you p- turn this knob, and you you fly things as though you're you, you just have to you know, understand which knobs to push and which buttons to push at the right time. But you really don't have a sense of being able to fly the plane. So when the autopilot starts to, you know, uh, to misbehave, as it was, that porpoising movement that they had, um, the, the smart pilot, the experienced American pilot, would reach down, turn the autopilot off, and take control of the aircraft and actually fly it. These pilots that were taught to run this like you're running a, uh, you know, some other kind of piece of equipment, uh, you would say, I don't want to turn the autopilot off because I've been told to trust mm. the autopilot and I really don't know how to fly a plane. And I'll give you a great example of that in a country um, in yeah. Japan, which is a modern industrialized country with a lot of airlines that fly in and out of there. Do you know they have almost no general aviation in that country at all? And what I mean by general aviation is, you know, all these people who own light, small planes, Right, that that are owned by individuals, and they go out and they fly for fun. If they don't own one, they'll rent one, and they go out and they fly, and they know how to fly an airplane. So if they want to go to a bigger airplane, they get a multi-engine rating, they get a bunch of hours, they move up the chain, and they know how. But but at the end of the day, they know how to actually fly that airplane, even if every every single electronic system on it goes, they can fly the plane. Uh, people in Japan where there's almost no private aviation at all uh, compared to America where I can't remember. I looked it up the other day. How many general aviation pilots there are in America? People 
who you pass on the street and you say, yeah, I know how to fly. Uh, you know, you yeah. smoke or you get in a conversation. When you have that situation and people think, well, anybody can fly a plane, you push this knob and you bring the airspeed up to V1 and then you rotate, you pull back on the stick. But they really don't know how to fly. They know how to operate a machine as long as the machine behaves properly. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Now, as for this door plug blowing out, um, it almost begins to sound like that happened because of what was how the plane was manufactured. Because I've had some former Boeing engineers email me when we've been talking about this, and they say, look, Lars, those plugs are put in at the factory. They're not something that is maintained by the airline that owns the airplane. They're put in, they're intended to stay in, and if it was put in badly or put in so that it might actually you know, blow out of the side of the plane, that was likely a mistake in manufacturing, not in maintenance. But I very much appreciate the call, and, uh, and, and it's an interesting question. Has the company changed its sort of uh, corporate culture uh, since it moved to Chicago? Perhaps it might be. I want to tell you this, and this should concern you. I know that we have a, uh, I know based on emails and phone calls and all from a lot of you that there are a lot of Democrats and even Biden voters who listen to this show. I want you to consider just how scary this sounds, that there are top Democrats on Capitol Hill who are telling Joe Biden, don't engage in a debate with Donald Trump. Now, I think it's because Even though the White House says, well, he's 81 years old, but he's in great health. Can't you tell? And he's got a firm grasp why he's his his uh, brain is as sharp as any other time that he's capable of handling the demands of one of the world's toughest jobs. And that's to be president of the United States. Well, the Hill dot com is pointing out that two Democrat senators are telling Joe Biden, don't agree to any debates with Donald Trump. Now, this should strike you as a little bit strange. It strikes me as strange because if you're capable of being the commander in chief of the U.S. military and being in the position of being the top executive in government in the most powerful country on the planet and you can't stand on a debate stage and actually simply just best Donald Trump, every Democrat who ever calls me on this show will tell me, Donald Trump's horrible. He doesn't make any sense. Blah, 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 blah. And, and you say, well, you're going to vote for Biden. Yeah, because he's a great president. Now, here's what Democrat whip Dick Durbin from Illinois says. I would think twice about it. I've been physically present at one of Trump's debates with Hillary Clinton, and I watched him do outrageous things and say outrageous things. It's just an opportunity for him to display his extremism. Well, let's suppose that's actually true. If Donald Trump is going to come off to the American public and the television audience and the audience in the venue where they hold this debate as a complete lunatic, he's out of his mind, he's an extremist, he's crazy. Well, then, yeah, go ahead, get on the debate stage with him and let him be as crazy as you want. Joe Biden always bragged that now the adults were back in the White House. Tell you what. The demented are back in the White House. Donald Trump makes more sense to most Americans. Coming up in a moment, is AI the newest tool that we can use to catch child predators? We'll talk about that coming up then. Uh, uh, uh. 
Konstantin Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Carl Zabo joins me now, vice president at NetChoice and a professor of internet law at George Mason University Scalia Law School. Carl, happy new year and welcome back. Yeah, happy new year to you and uh, glad to be back. I know plenty of people who are concerned about artificial intelligence. I'm one of them. But I also have made a point to say, you know, there, there are also some great promising things that it could do in, uh, in medicine. And now it sounds like perhaps in law enforcement and nailing some child predators. Is that the case? Yeah, this is uh, something, an article that was reported on earlier today. And look, 2023 was huge for AI. A lot of people talked about 2024 is when we actually start to see that that idea, those thoughts become reality. And when it comes to stopping child predators, it's a really sad statistic. Less than 1%, less than 1% of cyber tips get acted on. And in 2022, there were 32 million, 32 million reports of child sexual abuse online. Now, to go through 32 million reports, it would require over 3,000 people working 24-7, 365 just to process it. Right. Well, one of the things that we're seeing with artificial intelligence is it can expedite the processing of these reports of child sexual abuse. It can actually identify legitimate from illegitimate reports. It can help build the cases to take these cyber predators down and turn it over to law enforcement. So already artificial intelligence is saving over 4,000 hours and processing 2,100 cases. Now, we're still, sorry, 21,000 cases. So we're still a long ways away from covering that 32 million reports, but we're getting much, much faster. And every child predator that we put behind bars is another child predator that's taken off the streets, taken away from our kids, and put where they belong. And that's just one example of where AI is becoming reality. And the reality is it's getting used to stop child predators, and it's happening today. Okay, and so that's and, and, one of the things we can get really excited about, about AI. And, and, Go ahead. and one of the only concern, I mean, I've had concerns about AI and privacy. But in this case, if you're simply letting the AI help you screen millions of reports where people suspect uh, child uh, uh, predators or child uh, sex offenders or child traffickers, then then you're not you don't really have to worry about invading anybody's privacy. You're just saying, help us, we, you know, uh, separate out the wheat from the chaff and then turn the wheat over to the actual human investigators to look look into the cases. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, this is step one in a process. It's not as though the A.I. says, you know, ch- a child molester and then a government kicks in a door. <laughs> but it is the first step. In, in getting those bad actors and putting them behind bars. So, yeah, humans are definitely going to be part of this equation, but it's definitely helping to sift through a lot of the stuff out there. And AI has been doing this for us for quite a while, right? It's been doing it for us with respect to spam emails, where it's able to detect legitimate from illegitimate emails. Well, now we're able to apply it because the machine learning's gotten so good. We can apply it to these types of cyber reports. Another way that I'm seeing it uh, really change lives is in the legal field, you know, where I am as a professor. We spend so much time and money doing what's called document review, 
Well, AI can offset and eliminate that wasteful time, now, what, that wasteful what is, spending. Carl, what is doc, oh, is ahead. that looking for errors and flaws in a, in a brief you've written, that kind of thing? Oh, th- yeah, thanks for clarifying. Sorry, sometimes I get uh, into legal jargon. Uh, document review is literally, if, if you ever see a trial and you see the people walking through with the cases yeah. and boxes full <laughs> yeah. of documents, somebody's got to yeah. read all that. And so what document review typically is, is you come out of law school and you're stuck there looking through every single file trying to find that smoking gun. Well, AI can help simplify that process. But as you point out, it goes well beyond legal. It goes well beyond criminal prosecution. I mean, today, AI is being used to detect cancer better than doctors, better than doctors. And that's another great example of where we're seeing cancer rates go up. But this is where cancer screening can get better, get earlier detection. And we actually are seeing some technology out in Las Vegas being shown off using AI, where pretty soon you'll be able to kind of stand in front of a mirror. And the system, using biometrics and artificial intelligence, can begin to identify health risks before they even show. Well, because because I can imagine, I've talked to radiologists before, you know, where they'll they'll look at a scan and they'll say we're looking for a you know something and say a, 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 mam- a mammogram and you say we're we're looking for things that would indicate cancer or that there's some some kind of tumor that's growing somewhere. Well, human eyeballs are great, uh, but but on the other hand, human eyeballs get tired, they get bored, they get all those other things. And AI, if if programmed right, could actually look through all those scans and say, okay. We're seeing something here that and, and would it be capable, would the AI be capable of learning that as it finds ones that turn into real cases, it says, OK, anytime you see this pattern of, of things in an image that has been indicative of of cancers in the past, you, it could do that, couldn't it? Absolutely. It's really good at pattern recognition. It can see little errors, little uh, items in mammograms and be able to figure out stuff that we didn't even know was precancerous. And it can make those connections. And it goes beyond the medical field, too. It goes into actually getting people to the hospital. So one of the other ways that we're starting to see AI integrated into life is it's helping fire and police services get to people faster. I mean, we all know traffic is terrible and there is no good route. But artificial intelligence can actually begin figuring out what is the optimal route at a certain time of day in a certain weather condition, and route fire, police, ambulances to people who need them faster. And it's going to constantly get smarter and better. And this is just skimming the surface, because as I look a little bit further into the horizon, there are three major things that AI is primed to help us deal with. One, curing cancer. Two, curing energy problems. And three, curing food problems. And we have thrown billions of dollars and the smartest minds to cure cancer. We have spent billions of dollars, smartest minds to discover nuclear fusion, cold, cheap, renewable energy, and as well as increasing crop yield. Artificial intelligence can analyze, test, fix, and retest in fractions of seconds. And if it can change one of those, if it can solve one of those, that is world-changing technology. That is life-changing. And that's the type of thing that advances humanity. So that's why I'm really excited. But we are seeing a bit of a education and skills gap. And this is where we really need to turn to the educational systems to begin to really embrace artificial intelligence 
as a professor, I know a bunch of my colleagues sometimes see AI and they run yep. away. Oh, it's going to ruin the classroom experience or it's going to take my job. Well, that's a real disservice to the next generation. No doubt. Carl Zabo is vice president of NetChoice, professor of Internet law at George Mason University. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. Can you imagine being in a country in which if you're a reporter and you approach an elected public official, in this case the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, and you ask questions that that person does not like, or the people around them, the staff members to this young lady who is the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, if you could be arrested by the police for merely asking the questions. Now, I want to tell you the details of this story, but first, welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our uh, X poll. You'll find the question every day at Lars Larson Show on X, formerly known as Twitter. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. Now, I have to tell you a little bit of background because I do have a dog in the fight. You know that I'm a journalist today, but I'm an opinion journalist. But I was a reporter for about 20 years. And one of the things that people, sometimes politicians, do not understand is that if I approach you in public, I can take your picture. I can uh, ask you questions. If you don't like the questions and you don't want to answer the questions, that's too bad. Because I can still ask the questions. I can still approach you in public. But America has a First Amendment. It doesn't give journalists any superior rights to those of average citizens. The average citizen could walk down the street, and if he or she recognized the prime minister, you know, Trudeau, uh, or recognized the deputy prime minister in Canada, or in America, if you recognize the governor or the mayor of the city you live in, you'd be allowed, you're, you're allowed, you're certainly entitled to be able to walk up and ask some questions. Now, they don't have to answer your questions, but you can ask the questions. Except guess what just happened in Canada where they don't have a First Amendment that protects free speech or freedom of the press. A reporter by the name of David Menzies, I don't know David Menzies, but he works for an outfit called Rebel News. And he wanted to ask a few questions of Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland. And he approached her in the right way. She was at some kind of public event. She was leaving the event. She was on a public sidewalk. He walked up to her. He didn't get right in her face. He stood off to one side. She was walking down the sidewalk. He walked with her. He walked about three feet uh, to one side of her. He didn't get in her path. He wasn't obstructing her ability to travel. Uh, He was just asking her questions. And apparently, she didn't like the questions that he was being asked. Now, this was a memorial service that she'd been attending. The memorial 
was for when uh, about three, almost four years ago, four years ago yesterday, the Iranian military shot down uh, a flight, uh, a commercial airliner, PS-752, and there were people killed uh, when that plane was shot down. And Menzies was asking about the pro-Hamas protests that are treated so much more fairly than the Canadian trucker protests that happened two years ago. And he said the Canadian government has yet to designate the folks who shot that flight down, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. It's the IRGC, which is a terrorist organization out of Iran. Uh, the military, the IRGC at least, is sort of a government unto itself because the mad mullahs can make suggestions to them, but they certainly don't call the shots the way the commander-in-chief in America, at least in theory, calls the shots. So this reporter is asking questions for maybe a minute, maybe 60 seconds as he walks down the street. And I can't tell you how many times that I've tried to get a public official, one kind or another, uh, could be a police chief, could be a mayor, city council member, member of Congress, whatever. You walk down the st- sidewalk with them. You don't have any more right to occupy the sidewalk than they do. Uh, you don't have any right to force them to stop. If they decide to stop and talk to you, they can. If they decide to keep on walking, as this young lady, Christia Freeland, the deputy prime minister did, she can do that. But as David Menzies is asking her these questions about the way that pro-Hamas terrorism protests are being treated and about how the trucker protests, the Canadian government came, if you don't remember when that happened, but when the truckers were protesting in 2022, um, the Canadian government froze their bank accounts, sent the police after them, did all kinds of things that Justin Trudeau's government is not doing when the people come out and protest in favor of terrorism and when they take actions that are illegal as well. So... Guess what happens? He's walking down the street with her. She's walking fast, and he's walking fast as well. You can see the video of it, because when I hear about one of these complaints, a reporter arrested for merely asking questions, usually I'm skeptical because I'll think, well, maybe he did something else. Maybe he assaulted the person. David Menzies didn't do that. No, what you see in the video is a couple of cops come up and grab this guy, and haul him off to one side and hold him while the deputy prime minister of that country leaves. This is what they're doing. If your questions do not match what the leadership of that country, and I think the leadership of this country, wants you to be asking, they will use every tool in the book to try to shut you down. So here's what happened. David Menzies is trying to get past an RCMP officer who grabs a hold of the reporter, which, by the way, if you don't have a legal cause to grab a hold of somebody, then that's considered assault. And he grabs Menzies and says, you're under arrest for assault. And he says, how am I under arrest? You bumped into me. And one officer told Menzies he was almost pushing everybody over. Well, if you don't believe me, take a look at the video. We'll post it up on my website. But these are the tools that are going to be used by those in power to stay in power. They don't want to be asked inconvenient questions about, well, hold on, why are you not going after these terrorists? Why is it that some protest groups get hands-off treatment from the police and other protest groups end up with all kinds of trouble? And my favorite example of that, of course, is the man who went to a pro-life rally with his 12-year-old son, and his 12-year-old son was being accosted by a woman and uh, and the father got in the way and merely pushed her back. He was protecting his son. He didn't knock her down, didn't hurt her, didn't do any of that. And yet he ends up in America 
with an FBI SWAT team on his front doorstep to arrest him and haul him in on charges. These are the tactics that are starting to be used. And I hate to say it because if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that I'm a supporter of the police. But I always say, as long as they're following the law and their department's procedure, when the police begin to be used by the powers that be to carry out political missions, to go out and arrest critics of the government or critics of the point of view, in this case it was the pro-life issue, in the case of Canada and David Menzies, All he was trying to do was point out with questions the hypocrisy of the Canadian government, that the Canadian government can stage a memorial for all the lives lost on that day when the IRGC shot down a plane full of civilians, and they'll have a memorial service, but will they actually take the actions they could take against the IRGC by declaring them what they are, what the United States considers them to be part of the terrorist operation known as the state of Iran? The government isn't going to do that, nor are they going to go after Antifa or BLM. And in this election year, you should be especially attuned to these issues. Watch for this to happen. Glad to get your calls at 866-439-5277. You've got the Lars Larson. This is Ronald Reagan knew better. Do you? All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, used to be called Twitter. Now it's the X. So uh, we're calling it the poll on X. In any case, the question is there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. I want to tell you about a recent Joe Biden executive order that seems to be a way to help the Democrats win an unwinnable presidential election for Joe Biden. And to do that, I want to talk to our friend Fred Lucas, who is chief news correspondent for The Daily Signal and author of the book, The Myth of Voter Suppression. Fred, welcome back to the program. How are you? Oh, uh, great. Thanks for having me on. So tell me about this executive order. What is it that uh, Joe Biden did to ch- change the rules without going through the Congress, but just through the bureaucracy? Well, yeah, uh, you, you might remember uh, Democrats did push a uh, uh, bill uh, a few years ago in uh, Biden's first year in office to try to just have a total federal election takeover. Uh, they failed to get that through, but uh, Biden did a vast executive order uh, that put um, – an all-of-government approach, every agency is supposed to uh, work to increase voter participation. And that's, that's uh, uh, you got to look at the language there. It's not even increase voter registration. It's increase voter participation. Uh, and that in- ended up including, um, uh, at with taxpayer on the taxpayer dime, uh, federal agencies working with 
uh, left-wing organizations like Demos, which is a, a far-left think tank out of New York, like uh, the ACLU, uh, and uh, the Biden administration has been very secretive about this whole how they're implementing this whole order. Uh, uh, we've been getting dribs and drabs through uh, Freedom of Information Act requests at the Daily Signal. And uh, what we've discovered last week was the uh, Office of Personnel Management uh, is in a full-fledged push to uh, crank out the federal bureaucrats, basically. Uh, now, federal bureaucrats vote or, or believe the least, proceed to vote overwhelmingly Democrat. Uh, yep. uh, we looked at their separately, separately from the documents we got through the administration. We looked at uh, looked up campaign finance data, found 94 percent of the federal employee PACs, the uh, AFGE PAC, uh, donates to Democrats. Um, so it's like uh, um, massively, 94 uh, percent there, uh, and. Uh, this is basically just another case of the administration uh, working to turn out their voters. And, turn out their voters, um, which, which I guess yeah, by exactly. itself doesn't sound you, too you, bad. You, if you say, no, we, no, no. We it, want people that's to vote. nothing wrong with that. But yeah, right. yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But you're putting the force of the federal government behind it, and you're using government resources behind that. Well, not only that, but they've now agreed to carve out paid administrative leave to encourage exactly. some of these federal bureaucrats to work as poll workers? Yeah, and, and that that could be a a potentially a bigger problem than just four hours for voting. That Yeah, they've, uh, they've carved out time for working as uh, basically an election administration uh, positions. And um, if, as a poll worker, that gives you uh, some a glimpse behind uh, how, how things are working and so forth. And and that could give these uh, partisan players uh, potentially a leg up, uh, as as one House member said. The chairman of the House Administration Committee uh, called Democrats trying to get their thumb on the scale of the elections. Well, and in fact, one of the things I saw out of Arizona that's going on, you know, if you have federal government loyal Democrats working as poll workers, and now the state of Arizona, and I'm not sure they're the only state. I wouldn't believe they're the only state that are doing this. They say. Uh, about illegal aliens. I mean, Joe Biden's allowed 9 million illegals to come into the country. Some have been sent home, but the vast majority have stayed. And Arizona now says, well, you have to be a citizen to register to vote. But then they kind of do a wink and a nod, and they say, but you're not required to submit any proof that you're a citizen when you register. But if you're registering and you're not a citizen, you're breaking the law, which is is them saying, yeah, we're not going to make you show any proof that you're qualified to vote. We'll sign you up to vote, but we're warning you, you know, if, if you're not legally voting, you're, you're you know, you, you could be in trouble. But but, you know, in most cases, they don't pursue those kinds of, of violations. So they may, con- I guess, conceivably have millions of people who are illegal aliens who are encouraged to go down, sign up to vote. They won't ask you for proof of citizenship and you can cast a ballot. And who are they going to be thankful to? Donald Trump, who had the most secure border in recent American history, or Joe Biden, who has the most wide open border in recent American history. Well, uh, so, something I have in in my book. Uh, thank you for mentioning that earlier. The myth of voter suppression. Uh, it, uh, it talks about uh, what is essentially Tammany Hall 2.0. And just to explain that real quick, Tammany Hall was this uh, massive um, democratic machine that operated out of New York, but it had national influence. And uh, among the things they did, they had 
uh, migration mills. As soon as people got off the boats, there were uh, <laughs> Tammany Hall signing them up to vote Democrat, and uh, they, they would work to get people out of prison to vote Democrat. Um, I, I should mention part of what this Biden executive order that we're talking about does, it registers people to vote at naturalization ceremonies. Now, now if they're at a naturalization ceremony, they're citizens, but uh, basically you have the Department of Homeland Security, they're tasked with making sure that they vote and potentially encouraging them to vote a certain way. Uh, you have the Justice Department under this Biden executive order uh, directing prisoners who are getting released uh, how they can sign up to vote. You have uh, the Department of Education working on getting college students to vote. Uh, and so forth. Uh, and I, this, again, this might sound on one level benevolent, but uh, it is basically the government, the force of the government, trying to drive out their own constituency, or the, and, a, a constituency and, for one party. I'm talking to Fred Lucas, and Fred, of course, is uh, with the Daily Signal, and his book is called The Myth of Voter Suppression. But one of the ways you can work, if you're working as one of these poll workers or if you're working to encourage people to vote, it doesn't take too much to tilt your efforts in favor of voters who are more likely to be Democrats than Republicans, because anybody who wants to can go down and get a list of, you know, or maps of where, where, what are precincts that are heavily Democratic, what are precincts that are heavily Republican. If you focus your efforts in one area, It'll look the same from the outside, but you'll end up, on average, getting a lot more Democrat votes than you will Republican votes. And the last presidential election, there was only 4.5% difference between the two candidates, if you believe the numbers from the 2020 election. So tilting at a couple of percentage points one direction or the other could make all the difference in the world. Yeah, and and one thing, uh, this OPM uh, directive, it does not distinguish... uh, career federal employees from a political federal employees. So, I mean, uh, what are you going to have, uh, Secretary Mayorkas uh, sitting there at a, as a poll worker? Do you think he's going to check anybody's ID no. or, or see if they're a citizen? <laughs> he doesn't check well, their, and, if they're Well, and the other now, thing, Fred, but, is, you know, that OPM was saying a lot of private companies are giving people time off to vote. You know, uh, okay, private companies can do what they want. Under the Hatch Act, can they can can federal bureaucracies literally well, say to their employees, we're giving you time off paid for by the taxpayers to go vote? Isn't that a violation of the Hatch Act using public resources that's, that's, to encourage that? That's a very big question. Uh, the Hatch Act, the way they might be able to get around that is saying, well, we're not telling them who to vote for. Uh, it's not, not partisan political activity. Uh, but, yeah, but uh, the Hatch Act, uh, just explain it briefly, they, it's a law that prohibits partisan political activity by federal employees on federal time using federal resources. Well, if they're and, getting paid to go to, um, to and, go and vote. Yeah, isn't that, right, isn't right. that use of public resources it, for it, partisan it, activity? It very well could be. It very well could be. I mean, this is something that would have to be litigated and investigated uh, as to whether it's partisan. I mean, you could say, well, you're voting and you can vote however you want. I think it'd be how the government would respond. Except we know that most federal employees are registered Democrats, which means even if you got a few Republicans voting as well, it's going to benefit overall the Democrat Party. That's Fred Lucas, the author of The Myth of Voter Suppression. He is the chief news correspondent for The Daily Signal. Fred, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much for the time. Back in a moment, we'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at Lars. The Lars Larson Show.
Elon Musk sums up America's government. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to get to your calls. We'll do that in the next segment. But I want to tell you something. I hate the budget deal that has been cut on Capitol Hill. Now, I made that clear because I want Romina Baccia to know where I'm coming from. She's director of budget and entitlements at the Cato Institute. And we talk to her about budget issues from time to time. Romina, it's good to have you back and Happy New Year. Oh, thank you. Happy New Year to you. It looks like Congress is going to keep spending. What else is new? (laughs) Yeah, what else is new except that have we now normed this stuff to the point where people just say, oh, just get this over with, just cut some kind of deal, because the deal that they've locked us into is not just for this budget. This kind of sets things in motion in ways that, that aren't going to be very easy or even possible to undo uh, in, in the years and decades ahead. Am I right? You know, I would argue that it is continuing business as usual, and I think this is where Speaker Johnson is finding himself uh, in striking this deal. It's like, is it is it the best deal he can get, given that the Senate is um, under control by Democrats and you have Biden in the White House? Like, how much leverage do House Republicans really have? It is a better deal than McCarthy struck uh, in May with the debt limit deal, once you account for all the side deals, et cetera. And uh, from that perspective, I mean, it's nowhere near what we wanted, what we asked for, which was, you know, cut spending down to pre-pandemic levels. The pandemic is over. We should go back to the fiscal year 2019 level now. Um, we can't afford to continue spending at this rate. The deficit is at over $2 trillion now and growing from here. And uh, But, you know, the House Republicans pushed, 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 and now we're in uh, January, four months into the fiscal year, and still spending bills haven't been passed. So it's sort of like the rock, the, the speaker is between a rock and a hard place. I have to find a deal that uh, the Democrats will go along with, and that's the deal we've gotten. So there's some small wins for fiscal restraint, but mostly it's just business as usual. And it's uh, sort of like, you know, the Democrats' negotiating position was – a lot more spending, blow up the caps, uh, put put a bunch more emergency spending in addition to the deal that they agreed to. And it looks like, um, you know, Democrats have the upper hand in these negotiations. You know, I, how much above pre-pandemic levels are we, even if, if you add in inflation or don't add in inflation, how much above are we? Are we a trillion above pre-pandemic or two? So in... So just looking at discretionary spending, which is roughly one third of the budget, because that's all that the uh, members of Congress are talking about right now. Right. The other part of spending is growing on autopilot. That's a whole nother story. That's Social Uh, Security, Medicare and things and federal pensions and all those things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just looking at discretionary spending, which the biggest chunk of that is defense. And then you have a bunch of non-defense programs, which include actually veterans health care and other benefits, uh, Medicaid, as well as uh, a slew of various federal subsidy programs from energy subsidies to uh, transportation, et cetera. But just looking at that 30 percent of the budget, we're about 300 billion above uh, pre-pandemic levels. But that's without accounting for inflation. And that's something also where Republicans are saying, look, 
we do want to be honest about how much more we're spending. And yes, inflation is also something that the government should take responsibility for. Um, but if you actually take into account that we've had about 20% inflation since 2020, then uh, you know this deal maybe doesn't look as bad as it potentially could. Because so much of the extra spending does get eaten up by inflation. The federal government is, of course, affected by this as a purchaser of goods and services just as much as the American people are, except unlike the American people, the government can just print more money, right? Which is where we got this inflation in the first place. Yeah, and, and more spending equals more inflation equals more spending. It's like a, it, it's, it's a loop that we're stuck in. But, you know, Ramina, maybe I'm suggesting something that isn't even, you know, politically possible, but I think all of us out here in the real world, this is the way I'd look at it. I wish the Republicans would pass an actual responsible budget. And you say, but it's going to get shot down in the Senate. You say, so be it. Let it get shot down, but, but, but get them to vote on it. You know, make the Republicans and the Democrats vote on it. The Republicans will vote for a responsible spending package that's a lot smaller. The Democrats will vote against it, and you'll tell the American people, we gave them a budget. It was a good budget. It was a responsible budget. It brought spending down, and they shot it down. So now we're going to pass this one instead. At least then, you because right now, the perception I hear is, well, the Republicans are participating in this budget excess because they just seem to say, well, what will the Democrats say yes to? And then they, they pass a budget that, that meets that. I wish, but, but maybe it's not politically possible to tell the Republicans, take your, your tiny majority in the House and pass a responsible budget. Send it to the Senate, let it get shot down, and then make the case to the American people. We gave them a responsible budget. This is what we did. We were trying to bring us, we we're spending back within our means, uh, and the Democrats shut it down. So now they own it. You know, that's that's exactly the strategy that McCarthy used back in April. And Republicans voted for that budget proposal and and then they they, they held on to that. And when McCarthy was unable to strike a final deal with Democrats that looked like that House Republican passed budget proposal, they ousted him. So I'm thinking that maybe that's something that Speaker Johnson is looking at and saying, Hmm, McCarthy tried this approach, it didn't work. Let me try a different approach because, you know, there's only so much time left in this year um, where can we really afford to lose another speaker? <laughs> no. And, and do you think we're going to lose another speaker? Well, it doesn't it doesn't look that way. But with the strategy that McCarthy used, if you if you give Republicans what they say that they want and then they latch on to that and then they hold you accountable when that's not what you're able to deliver um, I think that puts uh, that puts Speaker Johnson in, in a much worse place. Now he's saying, look, we negotiated with the Democrats. We negotiate with the White House. We've come up with a deal all four corners can agree to. It's not, you know, ideal. It's not, um, but it's also not as worse as it could, be, could have been. It's, you know, business as usual. And so deal with it. You know, the big picture, too, is here that I don't think all is lost yet because, Again, you said, you know, how much more we're we spending on the entire federal budget. That's really where the key spending growth is. Discretionary spending, yes, it has been growing, especially during the pandemic. But still, the biggest drivers of our debt are the the growth and interest on the debt, yep. which is uh, and the entitlements, which are you know responsible for some of that. And and there, you know, Speaker Johnson has his eye on a much bigger ball, and that is. 
a fiscal commission to stabilize the debt over the next decade. And that's something that the, that the Republicans in the House are, are trying to push right now. And there's also bipartisan support in the Senate. So you now this, this spending deal that was struck only lays out spending through September. But if uh, Congress can pass a fiscal commission that establishes you know, a process that allows them to tackle the biggest drivers of spending growth and debt, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, and do so in a way that's sustainable over the long term, that's going to be a much bigger win than, you know, this uh, the short-term spending bill. We've only got about, you know, eight and a half months left in the fiscal year anyways. Yeah, people need to be reminded uh, the federal government doesn't operate on a calendar year. If you didn't know, October 1 is the beginning of the new federal year when it comes to budgets. Romina, thanks for what you do at the Cato Institute, and we appreciate your insights. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. That's Romina Boccia, Director of Budget and Entitlements at the Cato Institute. And I'm sure to hear from some people who say, you can't call Social Security an entitlement. Well, you're entitled to it, aren't you? That's why they call it an entitlement. Back in a moment. And by the way, that's two-thirds of the federal budget. What part of that do you want to cut and whose grandma loses her check? You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. has welcomed naysayers for 27 years, but occasionally... Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, now Joe Biden's re-election campaign, already 10 months out, has grown so desperate that they're actually calling in reporters from major news organizations to have a little session in the woodshed, is the way I'd describe it. They're going to call them in, and they have been doing this, to tell them they're not covering the news stories about both Donald Trump and Joe Biden the right way. Now, imagine imagine the temerity of a, an American president saying, I'm going to tell the media how they're to cover a story. Now, I know that some of you are going to say, well, Donald Trump used to criticize the news media. Yeah, he did. He criticized them and said, you're not telling the truth. Now, did he tell them, I'm going to tell you how to tell the truth? No. He just said, when you don't tell the truth, I'm going to call you out on it. And we all applauded that. But here's Joe Biden, who wants to do this behind the scenes, or at least his campaign does. So they call reporters in. Let me get into the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you. If you want to join this conversation, it's the best conversation in talk journalism at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And if you happen to be a naysayer, I'm going to put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our X poll, the poll on X, as we're now calling what we used to call the Twitter poll. You can find that at Lars Larson Show. That's our handle. Or on my website at LarsLarson.com. 
Here's the way it's being reported. Eddie Scary is a, one of our favorite reporters at The Federalist. He said a short item this week on the news site Semaphore had an interesting way of describing the existing dynamic between the national news media and Joe Biden's angry reelection campaign. And if you watched part of or all of Friday's speech and yesterday's speech, you understand this is an angry campaign that condemns more than half of all Americans as being anti-American, white supremacist, MAGA, you know, all the usual disparaging terms that somehow Joe Biden and his campaign believe that if you start to disparage Americans and say, well, you're bad people, if you believe in these things, if you think differently than we are, Here's what it says. It says that Joe Biden's campaign has, quote, begun organizing a series of off-the-record trips for top political reporters and editors to meet up at the campaign headquarters of Joe Biden in Wilmington, Delaware, for the purpose of what are being described as background briefings on campaign strategy. Now, that sounds kind of harmless. Okay, you're covering the campaign. We'll tell you about how we're running the campaign. The only problem is... That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is calling the reporters in. So he says, for example, I'd like to think that the person who authored this article is just hopelessly naive, but it's Ben Smith who's been running in these circles for about three lifetimes. So he certainly knows that contrary to his depiction, these aren't boring scenes where curious reporters show up to get a rundown on Joe Biden's campaign schedule and his campaign themes. That's not what happens. And in fact, there's been other reporting that I've looked at in the last couple of days. What they're doing is the nation's most influential media outlets, according to Eddie Scary, send representatives to a Democratic candidate facilities, in this case, Biden's campaign headquarters, to coordinate what their coming news coverage should look like, according to the preferences of the Democrats. I'd be lying to you if I told you that back when I was a reporter, uh, I didn't do a lot of full-time campaign coverage even at the local level, Um, And I certainly have never been out on the campaign trail with a presidential campaign. I would cover them when they came to the town I lived in, and that was that. But you would occasionally have conversations with people from campaigns. But they didn't dare tell you, this is what we want your story to look like. These are the things you should feature in a story about Joe Biden. And these are the things you ought to be saying about Donald Trump. So he wrote, campaign officials have chafed at some of the coverage of former President Donald Trump, feeling that the outlets, meaning the news organizations, are too focused on his legal troubles and have not paid nearly enough attention to some of his incendiary recent statements on the campaign trail. So the Biden campaign doesn't like the way that the reporters are covering Donald Trump. Too bad. So what? In other words, he says, CNN and MSNBC are about to start showing a lot more clips from Trump campaign rallies, wherein he says something that's supposed to supposed to offend the audience. The only thing is, and if it doesn't, no problem. Jake Tapper and Joe Joe Scarborough will be on hand to helpfully explain why this should offend you over and over and over again. So the Biden White House wants to through the campaign. They want to tell the news media. Here's how we want you to cover Joe. Ignore the fact that he's demented. Ignore the fact that he's losing his mind. Ignore the fact that he doesn't seem to be tuned in to much of what is going on in this country. To the point where he believes that America has an economy that's just booming and everything is going well. 
He can ignore the fact that mortgage interest rates allowing people to buy homes or not are more than double what they were when Joe Biden took office. That gasoline prices are at least 40 percent higher than they were when Joe Biden took office. That Joe Biden has regularly and routinely lied to the general public. Now, I, if, if you want to challenge me on that, say, well, he's not really lying. Let me tell you something. In the summer of 2021, his first full year in office, um, he told reporters who asked about inflation, this is temporary. It's going to go back down. It has not. It has continued to be high. And I know that some of you are going to say, well, it's lower this year, 2024, than it was in 2023. Yes, it is. It's gotten all the way down to about 3.5%, which is only about 60% higher than it was the day he took office. So groceries cost, on average, 20% more. Mortgages cost more than 100% more. Gasoline is more than 40% more than the day Joe Biden took office. And most of those changes are tied directly back to the actions of Joe Biden. So, for example... Just in the last couple of days, and Eddie Scary offers these examples where the media is apparently taking the marching orders of the Biden campaign. So the Associated Press said Senate border security talks grind on. Oh, boring. As Trump invokes Nazi era blood rhetoric against immigrants. The Washington Post on December the 18th. That language has caused alarm among some civil rights advocates and immigrant groups who have compared it to the writings of Adolf Hitler. Yep, they got to use the Hitler comparison. So all of this, even though it's Joe Biden who is telling you why the other side is going to take away your right to vote, this is the one I find most laughable in a strange way. You've got Maine and Colorado at the behest of the Democrats who've tried to take Donald Trump off the ballot, and then Joe Biden shows up at two campaign speeches in the last four days to warn Americans that Donald Trump is trying to take away your right to vote. Excuse me, but when your party is taking a man's name off the ballot, who is it that's stealing the right to vote of Americans and the right to decide who they want as the leader of their country? I'd say it's Joe Biden and the Democrats. Glad to get your calls at 866 Show. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show.